Public protests around a series of police killings of black people have put a needed spotlight on the experiences of many African-American communities with police brutality and racism. But when protesters from Ferguson to Baltimore have a chance to speak, their concerns rarely stop at policing. On a short list of other community issues, you're likely to find substandard, segregated, sometimes dangerous housing. To the extent that that factor is engaged in public and media conversation, the explanations for it are often cursory and sometimes downright misleading. Activists and their allies are trying to push the present moment of focus into a substantive, sustained response to the myriad impacts of white supremacy on U.S. life. And understanding housing conditions like those in the Baltimore neighborhood where Freddie Gray lived and died is key to moving that conversation forward. Joining us now to talk about that is Richard Rothstein. He's research associate at the Economic Policy Institute and author of, among other titles, Grading Education, Getting Accountability Right. He joins us now by phone. Welcome back to Counterspin, Richard Rothstein. Thank you very much. Well, your recent piece that's been picked up by the Washington Post's Valerie Strauss, among others, is titled From Ferguson to Baltimore, The Fruits of Government-Sponsored Segregation. And I'd like you to explain some of the expressions of that segregation. But also I noticed that NPR's description of your May 6th interview said Richard Rothstein talks about what he calls government-sponsored segregation. So what are some of the policies that you're talking about in this piece? And is it really just your own notion, the existence and the intention of these policies? (laughs) Well, we have a myth in this country that we have what the lawyers call de facto segregation, that we created these neighborhoods like the inner city of Baltimore that are almost all black, that are poor, that are segregated from mainstream society by accident, either because black people were too poor to move to the suburbs or because there was private prejudice or because there was white flight of people who didn't want to live near blacks. And although some of that is true, The bigger cause, the most important cause of segregation is public policy that was deliberately intended for the first two-thirds of the 20th century to separate black and white families. And segregation uh, was a government policy. It was racially conscious. It was not the, the unintended consequence of benign policies. It was designed by federal, state, and local governments to segregate our communities. And this was true in every metropolitan area in the country. Now, in Baltimore, in the early 20th century, Baltimore actually passed an ordinance defining which blocks blacks could live on and which blocks whites could live on. When that kind of ordinance was declared unconstitutional by the Supreme Court in 1917, the mayor of Baltimore set up a committee on segregation to make sure that even without the ordinance uh, still being in effect, that housing inspectors, that health inspectors would enforce uh, segregation. And if any family uh, in a white neighborhood were to sell to a black family, the housing and health inspectors would make sure that the black family could no longer live there. And this kind of thing went on at local level for many years. Then the federal government played a major role in explicitly segregating neighborhoods in Baltimore and throughout the country. The first civilian public housing program began in the New Deal 
under the Public Works Administration. It was a New Deal program to create housing for civilian population. And it was segregated. The director of the Public Works Administration uh, in the Franklin Roosevelt administration established what he called a neighborhood composition rule, which was that public housing uh, could only be established for people of the race in the neighborhood where the public housing was established. In fact, many of the public housing projects were established in integrated neighborhoods. They tore down integrated neighborhoods and created segregated neighborhoods in their place. That's one of the things that happened in St. Louis, for example, that uh, led to the kind of uh, situation we have in Ferguson. That continued. Public housing continued to be segregated throughout the, the 20th century up until the mid-1950s. In 1949, President Truman proposed a massive expansion of uh, public housing programs in this country. At the time, there was still a c civilian housing shortage, so public housing was for whites, uh, not just for blacks. Mm -hmm. And in order to try to defeat his public housing proposal, Republicans in Congress put forward what they called a poison pill amendment. That was an amendment that would require public housing to be integrated. Knowing that if the amendment passed, Southern Democrats would then no longer vote for uh, public housing and the entire public housing program would be defeated. So liberal Democrats in the Senate and the House, led by people like Hubert Humphrey, campaigned against the integration amendment because they argued that uh, if the public housing was integrated, there would be no public housing at all. And this was true throughout the country. This was not just for the South. And so segregated public housing was created throughout the country. The biggest federal policy, probably, was the policy of the Federal Housing Administration, which financed, starting in the, in the, the early 1940s, builders of uh, subdivisions, mass production builders of places like you're familiar with in Levittown, New York, or Daly City in California, and subdivisions everywhere in between. They financed builders to create subdivisions of single-family homes in the suburbs on condition that they be sold to whites only. That was an explicit condition of the Federal Housing Administration financing of bank loans to developers. So while whites and blacks were of similar uh, incomes, returning war veterans, for example, working class families, could have afforded to buy into the suburbs, only whites were permitted to do so. Blacks were consigned not only to urban ghettos, but to segregated public housing in urban ghettos. And those are the kinds of policies that uh, resulted in what we see in Baltimore today, what we saw in St. Louis, and what we've seen uh, around the country for the last 50 years. One more thing, in um, 1970, the Secretary of Housing and Urban Development of the Nixon administration was a fellow named George Romney, uh, the father of the recent presidential candidate. George Romney understood everything that I've just described to you, as did most people at that time. We've forgotten this history. George Romney said that the federal government had created a white noose around inner-city ghettos. And it was the job of the federal government now to untie that noose. And George Romney began a program which he called Open Communities, in which he denied federal funds to suburbs that refused to desegregate. And one of the first test cases he made of this policy of denying federal funds for sewers and parkland and water projects was to Baltimore County. And he told Baltimore County that it was not going to get any more federal funds for any urban projects unless it repealed its exclusionary zoning ordinance, that is, ordinance that uh, prohibited the construction of multifamily dwellings in the suburbs, unless it accepted public housing with African Americans, uh, 
and unless it accepted subsidized low-income housing. Baltimore County was one of the first places that he tried to do that. Mm-hmm. Eventually, George Romney was reined in by the Nixon administration because there was a white backlash to his desegregation policies. And Romney himself was eventually forced out as, as Secretary of Housing and Urban Development. And we've had nothing as aggressive in way of desegregation since. So this history is once well known. It was once widely accepted and understood that segregation was not an accident, but it was a purposeful creation of state, federal, and local government. And we've now forgotten that we think that it happened by accident. And when we think it happened by accident, we then um, think there's nothing we can do about it. Whereas if we understood that this was the product of government policy, we would understand that there are government policies that could reverse it. And maybe it should go without saying, but of course, the connection between housing ownership and the accumulation of wealth is absolutely critical. So these policies explain even more than where people live. Well, that's correct. I mean, when you concentrate the low-income population in an area, of course, they, they, they become more low-income because they don't have access to jobs. And as you probably know, in the 1950s, uh, jobs began to move from urban areas out to suburbs because African-Americans were concentrated in a noose, as George Romney said, in central cities. They had no access to the jobs that were being created, so the community became poorer than it was before. Schools have to deal with problems that would be easily handled if they were not in great numbers. That is, if any school has children who uh, come from families who don't have stable housing or have parents who aren't literate and don't read to them often and have stress from frequent unemployment, if any school has a few children like that, a teacher in the classroom can devote special attention to those children and can remediate their problems. If you have schools where virtually every child has those problems, there's nothing the school can do to devote special attention to every child, so the whole quality of instruction declines. So all of the problems that we face today in terms of inequality by race are attributable in large part to federal housing policies that were designed to create segregation. Well, let me just ask you finally, unfortunately for corporate media, underlying problems are often where a story ends. You know, you report on community anger about police violence, for example, and then at the end you kind of wave your hat toward underlying problems, you know, the real things that need to change, but you leave them as kind of a model and and go on about your business. And then with the next incident we say, oh, wow, this again, or, you know, why haven't we been hearing about this until now? Do you have any thoughts about how reporting could be useful in engaging, given that reporters are going to talk about Baltimore, they're going to talk about Ferguson, What are some of the things you'd like to see them doing more of as they have that conversation? Well, I'd like to see them doing more of the things that you and I have been talking about, Uh, going into the history, trying to explain to their readers and their listeners and their viewers uh, how we came to have the kinds of desperate, low-income, segregated communities like we have in Baltimore, uh, like we have in Ferguson, like we have in cities around the country. If people come to understand this history, and they understand that government created segregation and government created the concentration of social problems in certain areas, they will understand that the government not only has a responsibility, but a constitutional obligation to reverse the effects of those policies. 
We've been speaking with Richard Rothstein of the Economic Policy Institute. You can find his work on their site. It's epi.org.